Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoite. My name is Connor McQuivy. I'm your host as always. Renoites is the weekly interview podcast where I talk to all sorts of folks from Northern Nevada, from the worlds of news and politics, business, nonprofits, arts and culture, a little bit of everything. The goal is that this is a great general interest podcast for people who live in Northern Nevada and listen to podcasts. There's probably guests on the list for you. So if you are just finding the show, check out the past catalog of episodes. We've had over 100 so far, a lot of really great guests. On today's episode of Reno Wines, I'm excited to welcome Jill Vakina Dobbs. She is the executive director of the SPCA of Northern Nevada. If you've been following the news, you know that the shelters are overflowing with pets, and they're really encouraging people to adopt a pet. Jill and I talked about the reasons for that. Why are the shelters so full? I learned about the structure of how animal control and adoption works here in Northern Nevada. There are several different organizations that interact with each other in different ways, We talked about the effects of COVID on animals being adopted or returned, home breeders breeding animals at their homes. We talked about breed restrictions and bans, talked about the issue of housing. We talk about housing on the show a lot, and one of the challenges for pets being adopted is properties that don't allow pets. A whole lot of really interesting stuff about how we care for the animals here in northern Nevada. Stay tuned after the show for a little sneak peek of some bonus content Jill and I talked a little bit too long for a regular episode. You can hear a little bit more from Jill about their lawsuit with Reno Ironworks. There's been a lot of news about an ironworks facility that is potentially going to be built right next to the SPCA shelter. And Jill talked about the background of that and the current status. That will be on patreon.com slash renoites. Of course, if you have suggestions for future guests or episode topics, let me know. Send me an email, Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. And now this week's guest, Jill Vakina Dobbs. Jill Vakina Dobbs, Executive Director of the SPCA of Northern Nevada. Welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much, Connor, for the opportunity to speak with you today. I'm looking forward to it. I have not done very much about animal stuff. I think I've only had one episode, and it was with Rachel Story from Feral at Heart, and she does trap neuter release. So we talked about cats and feral cats, but you are in the space where you have more control over the animals are. You're not doing as much with feral, you're doing animals who are already in some sort of capacity in a place. Uh, So to start, can you tell me what the SPCA is in terms of the entire ecosystem of animal control or animal services organizations here? So I know there's the Humane Society that a lot of people are familiar with. There's Washoe County's own animal control systems. And then there's the SPCA. Can you kind of give us a little bit of the lay of land on those? I'd be happy to. So now is the time to be talking about this because of the state of the shelter overpopulation crisis in our region, which we'll talk about specifically today, which is also mirroring the national increase in shelter populations. Rachel's story is fantastic. We work with Feral at Heart, so we help her place kittens that can be socialized so Mm. they can live with families instead of having to be returned. And we work as much as we can in the TNR field, despite the fact that we have limited resources there. Mm. But I think it's so important to emphasize animal welfare is only successful through collaboration. Our movement does its best when we all collaborate together and can put animals 
first because none of us can do this alone. There simply aren't enough resources to take care of all the pets and their people in need. So collaborations like what SBCA of Northern Nevada has with Feral at Heart and Community Cats and Washoe County Regional Animal Services and all of the rural municipal shelters that we serve are incredibly important and really are the foundation of who SBCA of Northern Nevada is Mm -hmm. and what distinguishes us from some other organizations. We are very focused on collaboration, on positive partnerships that lead to the best outcomes for as many animals as possible. For some background information on SVCA of Northern Nevada, we were founded in 1998 by a group of volunteers. At that time, the organization was founded to pull animals from Nevada Humane Society, which was euthanizing for space at that time, and to pull animals from Washoe County Regional Animal Services. So this is our 25th gear of existence in helping animals. And over the years, we have not only rescued and adopted thousands and thousands of animals, we've also provided the community with critically important, affordable care programs. And that includes affordable vaccine clinics for the public, affordable spay-neuter clinics for the public to keep these Mm -hmm. populations down to begin with. And the last few years, because of all the challenges in our economy, the impacts of COVID, and the dramatic increase in sheltering populations, we've launched additional programs. So we now have a medical assistance fund called Todd's Fund. We have behavior assistance that we pay for to help our alumni. Hmm. And we have training resources, as well as a greatly expanded behavior modification program. That's basic types of training based on a specific animal's needs Mm -hmm. to help them become ready for adoption. So once they're placed in a loving home, that increases the likelihood that that bond will last and increases the success rates for our adoptions. We also are trying new innovative programs that address specific needs. One of those is access to veterinary care is becoming increasingly difficult because we have a national shortage of about 20,000 vets Mm. nationwide. And also the affordability factor as more people in our economy struggle as we get a larger and larger wealth disparity in our country, we are trying to get access because people want to be the best pet owners and lovers that they possibly can be. And we're trying to help that. That helps reduce suffering of the pet, and it also helps reduce suffering of people. Mm. And that's vitally important because pets can't take care of themselves. They rely on all of us to be at our best Mm. so we can do our best for them. Yeah. You mentioned that you take animals or you receive animals from other organizations, and that's a big part of that's how you started, and that's kind of how you function. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works? Like when a stray animal is picked up, for example, by animal control, what is their path through this system to hopefully being adopted, what does that look like with that interaction? 
So I think the best way to answer that question is to take a step back and explain animal care and how it works in Northern Nevada. Mm -hmm. We have a group of organizations. All of us are independent organizations. There's no connection between SPCAs. We are not affiliated with the ASPCA, which is the national organization, which stands for American SPCA, which stands for Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. One of the biggest misnomers that the national organizations don't care to correct because it would negatively impact their fundraising efforts is that there is no affiliation. You cannot give to the ASPCA or the Humane Society of the United States with the anticipation that that money then finds its way to your local Hmm. shelter. It Mm -hmm. doesn't operate that way. Both national organizations do important work and they sometimes offer grants depending on lots of different factors. But it's very important to remember the best way to impact animal welfare in your community is to donate locally. And there are no governing principles. Anyone can open an SPCA, meaning it can be an organization that euthanizes for space, can be an organization like SPCA of Northern Nevada that does not euthanize for space, that rescues and adopts, And something else that makes us unique, especially for an organization of our side, that provides such robust community programs. Mm. So it's really important for people to get to know individual organizations and what they do and how they impact their communities. So Washoe County Regional Animal Services is the municipal organization. They hold the animal services contract and responsibility for Washoe County. That means that they taken all strays. They're the lost and found organization. Mm -hmm. So if you've lost or found an animal, please, please, please remember to get onto Washoe County Regional Animal Services website and fill out their forms because that's the hub and the best way to get pets reunited. Mm. They also are responsible for enforcing all animal laws. That's municipal, county, and state. They do all the cruelty investigations. They do welfare checks. They have the enforcement authority for our local laws. SPCA does not. We are a private nonprofit organization organized under chapter 501c3 of the IRS code. All that means is that's a tax status. Mm. That means we don't have to pay taxes and donors who give to our organization get tax benefits for doing so. Additionally, there's the Nevada Humane Society. They share a facility with Washoe County Regional Animal Services. They are the primary contractual partner for Washoe County. Washoe County does not do adoptions. They don't have that Mm. part of the business. The whole idea of that is the benefits of having a public-private partnership. As a public municipal agency, they're very limited on what they're able to do and how quickly they're able to pivot based on increasing or decreasing animal populations and a change in regional context Mm -hmm. because they're a government agency. We've seen these partnerships all over the country, and they can be very positive, such as where I came from, which is Humane Society of Truckee Tahoe, has a very close positive relationship with the town of Truckee. But we also see sometimes these relationships struggle. And when that happens, we need as a community to step forward and ask for accountability and ask for partners to be working together because we need to share resources. It's vitally important. 
I explain all of that because there's a misnomer in our community of what Washoe County Regional Animal Services role truly is. Since they don't have their own adoption arm of that agency, their partnership with Nevada Humane Society is vitally important. And that's why there's an operating agreement as well as a lease agreement for that facility. The mandatory state holding period for a stray animal is five days. Is that like five days for people to come and claim their animal? So that's why there's that period before they can be adopted or whatever happens to them next? Exactly. Every state has a different holding period. That's ours. Washoe County either accepts through their doors or picks up through their animal services officers stray animal. They intake it into their facility, which means it gets a medical check, vaccines, and then it gets housed. For five days, that animal has to be cared for by Washoe County staff in their part of the facility. Mm -hmm. After five days, then that animal is made available to transfer first to Nevada Humane Society. They have the contractual right of first refusal. That means any animal made available to transfer out of Washoe County, NHS gets the first say on we're going to take that animal. Mm. Or they can say, no, we're not going to take that animal. And that allows Washoe County to open the opportunity to other adoption partners. Okay. The next largest being SBCA of Northern Nevada, as well as vitally important foster-based rescues, Mm. which are part of our animal welfare map here in Washoe County and an important part of the safety net. We collaboratively provide for animals in Northern Nevada. That includes ones such as rescue, Boxers and Buddies, Buggable, and there's a number of others as well. Additionally, we also have CRCCS, Canine Rehabilitation Center and Cat Sanctuary. I stutter a little bit because (laughs) they recently added the C because they're building this beautiful new catteries to help them rehabilitate and adopt out cats as well because we have such a need. They are located in Washoe Valley. They are a very close partner of SBCA of Northern Nevada, and they have a different specialty. They have a physical building, so they are a shelter. They're not a foster-based organization. They provide incredibly important training programs at a discounted rate because they're nonprofit to the community as well as they pull at-risk animals from shelters all over to rehabilitate them through training, behavior modification, Mm -hmm. and then place them in specialized homes. If Nevada Humane Society does not accept a transfer out of Washoe County, nor do they say no to it, that's when now we're starting to see the animals languish. Mm. At the beginning of the summer, they'd been sitting in Washoe County for far longer. And that's when we started seeing Washoe County getting dangerously close to its capacity because animals weren't being pulled out. Washoe County did a great thing and they shortened the amount of time that that right of first refusal can be claimed during to 48 hours. So after the five days, there's 48 hours for the Humane Society to decide and then it automatically goes to other... Automatically gets opened up to the rest of us. Okay. This is vitally important because animals were sitting for weeks where they used to get evaluated during their stray hold so that once that stray hold was up, they could get transferred onto the adoption floor as quickly as possible after the mandatory spay-neuter surgeries, any required training or behavior modification. Nevada Humane Society has had a lot of internal management problems for over four years. 
the former CEO, Greg Hall, who did not have the qualifications to be in that role, resigned earlier this year. The organization was left in a much lower state of quality and operations than it's seen in the decade. They have brought in a new CEO and some new board members, and that organization is going through its own internal process of stabilizing so that it can once again operate at a high standard of care required to house and care for animals in our community. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate that they've had to go through that, but they are their own organization. As much as people love to call me and ask questions, I can't really speak to that because it's an entirely different organization. But that fact has dramatically impacted save rates and animal welfare in Northern Nevada and beyond. So I'm trying to give everyone an idea of what each organization provides and why Nevada Humane Society's current state impacts all the rest of us. Mm -hmm. They are by far the largest organization. Before COVID, they used to handle about 10 to 12,000 animals on an annual basis. For the last three years, their 990 tax forms have been showing around 7,000. Oh, so like almost half of the capacity they used to? Yes. And now it's been dramatically less over the last few months because they don't have the staffing levels they need. They don't have the training or expertise. So they are decreasing their capacity in order to stabilize that organization so they can once again be contributing at a higher level level. That means all the animals backing up in Washoe County Regional Animal Services pushes them at or beyond their capacity. In animal welfare, there is a calculation called capacity of care. And it's how each facility, including foster-based rescues, is supposed to calculate what their intake levels can be. That means how many animals can come into their facility and into their programs. For an example, with SPCA of Northern Nevada, you may come in and visit us and we have six dogs on the adoption floor, which is only one of the kennels we have in our physical building. And what we're always educating our community about is that's the end element of the entire process of an animal in our facility. Mm. Our capacity of care is a whole background that you can't see. If we have five dogs up for adoption, we have somewhere between 90 and 130 animals in our care total because we have animals not yet ready for adoption. They just came in. Dogs have a mandatory decompression period of at least 72 hours to reduce their cortisol levels before they can go in for their behavior assessment. Mm. That's based on animal shelter animal science. We work with the best behaviorist in the country who has developed these programs. And we're so fortunate she lives in our community now. And then they get their spay neuter and their behavior modification, any surgeries, any medical rehabilitation, whatever it is that they need to be successfully placed up for adoption. Additionally, we have a robust foster program. We do anywhere between five and 700 foster placements per year. Right now we have 45 kittens. Earlier this summer, we had 65 to 70 kittens growing up in foster home. That has to be part of our capacity of care because 
our medical team is responsible for the health and well-being of those animals. Mm-hmm. And they come in for regular checks, for weights, whatever their specific medical needs are. You mentioned animals that are adopted or not adopted or adoptable, I think was a word that you used when we talked previously. Can you tell me a little bit about what the difference is between animals that are adoptable? When an animal comes in off of the street, what does that look like as far as whether it can ever end up on the adoption floor? And if not, what happens with animals who can't be adopted or are not suitable for adoption? It's important for me to state here that every organization makes its own policy decisions on what it considers and how it defines an animal to be adoptable. So I'm going to speak from SPCA of Northern Nevada, Mm -hmm. of course, but this is an area of differing opinions within our movement. There is a document that came, it's called the Asilomar Accords, and it's basically a movement-wide treaty that was developed years ago, similar to a Geneva Convention, that defines what a healthy or treatable, adoptable animal is as it pertains to the sheltering movement. And that helps govern humane euthanasia decisions as well as what is the best outcome for that animal. When an animal comes into an organization, that organization's first and most important job is to immediately determine the best outcome for that animal. If it is an animal that is social to people and other animals, that is an adoptable pet and it's very clear. So that goes through the adoption process. If the animal is medically suffering with a poor prognosis, that is not an adoptable animal. And that animal can become a humane euthanasia candidate. That was one of my questions is, what is a no-kill shelter? Because I think people have different ideas of what that means. And most people probably assume when you hear no-kill, it means, oh, no animal that goes through those doors will ever die. But that's not what a no-kill shelter is, right? Can you talk a little bit more about what the actual no-kill looks like? That's correct. And that's why I'm I'm trying to start with this contextual information Mm -hmm. that hopefully the audience hasn't glazed over too much on, (laughs) but is a critical context to where the term no-kill comes from. And it's why I've been avoiding the use of it up until now. SPCA of Northern Nevada and progressive sheltering avoid the term because it's convoluted and carries too much misunderstanding and passion around it. So the term no kill means that animals are not euthanized for space or lack of resources. It means that for SPCA of Northern Nevada and how we define it in our board governed protocols, we will only humanely euthanize an animal in two circumstances. If that animal has a poor prognosis and it's suffering, a cancer diagnosis, when its symptoms are impacting its quality of life, for example, Mm -hmm. if it's a kitten that is failing to thrive, meaning it's slowly dying we're going to euthanize that animal. The second time that an animal can be humanely euthanized at our organization is if it is not safe to place in the community. This is where behavior assessments are important and all the information we gather from an adopter or a community member, whether it's a returned adoption in which case we will always take back any time. And that's because we make a lifetime commitment to our pets, which is not a standard in our movement, believe Mm. it or not. Or if the person is trying to surrender an animal that is not an alumni, they fill out a questionnaire 
We schedule a behavior assessment, and then we determine whether we can intake that animal. We can only intake animals where adoption is the appropriate outcome because that's what our organization is and what we do. And we're fortunate that our community supports us to the level that we can do a lot to get those animals ready for it. But it does not mean that we never humanely euthanize animals in our organization. The standard percentage is if you have a live release rate, meaning your outcomes are for live animals, whether they're transferred to other organizations, adopted out, if that is 90% or higher, that's the industry standard for being able to call yourself a quote, no-kill organization. SBCA of Northern Nevada has a statistically and historically high live release rate between 97 and 99% based on the year, based on what comes in through our doors. Mm-hmm. And that's something to be very proud of, but it's also important to note that we're a private admission shelter. We have a better chance of controlling the animals that come into our facility for organizations such as ours, it's easier to obtain and maintain such a high live release rate. We are and have been well supported by our community. We euthanize for behavior and we owe a duty of care to our community to do our best. It's not a perfect system and we never claim that it is. But if they have medical issues, then it becomes a question of, is it treatable? How much each month? Can we do anything to help support the adopters? But where most people get confused and passionate is with behavior euthanasias. Yeah. As someone who's been in animal welfare for over 18 years, I've had to have the difficult conversation during that long tenure with people whose own beloved pet is mauled right in front of them by a recent adoptee who we knew had dangerously high levels of exhibiting aggression in certain circumstances towards other dogs, people, cats, and farm animals goes into consideration if it's being adopted into a rural area. And nobody deserves that. And everybody loves their existing pets. And I'm sure most of us at this point have had encounters with our own beloved animals with an animal exhibiting aggressive behavior towards our pet. We use our science-based behavior assessment based on Kelly Boland's modified process for shelters because it's based on how their brains actually work. Mm -hmm. And it's the only one that's been tested in a university and peer-reviewed setting. It is not perfect. We also have constant feedback from adopters and volunteers and anyone else who encounters the animal during the day. That's our animal care staff. That's our clinic team. That's the administration, such as myself, where we're going in there to take an animal out and bring to the news or bring to a fundraising event. We have specific channels to receive that feedback because everything is taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. You mentioned people surrendering pets, and I know that that's a big part of the conversation around COVID, and I don't know how much of it is accurate or what the story was, but the narrative of my understanding is that during COVID, everyone's at home, they get bored, they're like, hey, let's get a puppy. And then they have to go back to work. They can't work from home anymore. And that drives a lot of these surrenders back to the shelter. Is that what has happened? Or can you give some more context around what has brought people to return animals and how that rate has changed over the last few years? We've heard a lot of this from the national media, that this is what is driving the increased homeless pet population nationwide. And that's not true. 
in that it is a very small percentage when you actually look at the data. In our region, it's a very small percentage. And the reason for that is most shelters have a adoption process where they do adoption counseling. We are trying to make successful matches. And we do that by asking about a potential adopter's expectations for a pet and their lifestyle so that we can match them with a personality that's best going to mesh. That Mm -hmm. sets the animal up for success. That sets the people up for success. And that helps spread adoption as a positive experience. During COVID, our organization continued to ask those important questions. And one of those questions was, you're working from home now. What does your schedule look like when you return to work? And that was an important question. Mm -hmm. So that's helped keep our returns small from COVID. More significant to adding to this dramatic increase in population is the lack of pet-friendly, affordable housing in not just our region, but Mm -hmm. the entire Western United States and frankly, most areas in the United States. The wealth disparity that continues in our country has really impacted the affordability of owning a pet. When people can't afford a pet-friendly apartment or they lose their job or inflation and corporate price hikes make their daily living unaffordable in our region, they have to relocate. And while it's easy to judge those people and say, well, I would never, it's completely unfair and it's harmful. We are here to help everyone. And people who surrender their pets in a shelter are doing the very best they can for that pet. And that's an important thing to remember. Mm-hmm. Because lots of us are only a paycheck, a major accident, or a major medical incident away from homelessness or bankruptcy. So when people are forced to make these difficult decisions of moving in with family, who maybe a member of that family is allergic to the pet, or they don't like the pet, Mm -hmm. or they were bit by a pet once and they're scared of it. They don't have a choice. We have such a low inventory of housing currently here and in our region. It makes it very difficult. So that is the largest driver. And then affordability also ties into vet care. If people have an animal that gets hit by a car or needs a dental because it has stomatitis, which is a massive infection of the mouth, which leads to pain and can lead to sepsis if not treated. These procedures are expensive. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people have $4,000 in extra liquidity laying around that they can use to then save their pet. And so that's resulting in an increase in what we call economic euthanasias, which in 2019 were outpacing humane euthanasias done in shelters. So that's a private practice setting where you're asking your private veterinarian to euthanize your animal because you cannot afford its care. You can imagine the heartbreak that that pet guardian feels as well as the heartbreak of the veterinarian and the vet staff there. So that's one of the major reasons we started Todd's medical fund in 2020. Additionally, another reason for the dramatic increase in populations is COVID had negative impacts on the operation of affordable spay-neuter clinics across our country. So in our region, Nevada Humane Society used to run a very large and robust one, and SPC of Northern Nevada's was uh, a supportive one to that. And they haven't run theirs in over four years. Nationwide, the data shows that COVID returns made when people went back to work is a much smaller percentage. Two additional ways that COVID did impact that is a lot of homes are full. They have the amount of pets that works for their family that's appropriate for them. And they haven't been looking to bring new pets into their environment in the last two years. Mm -hmm. But a much larger impact 
is that COVID shut down a lot of affordable spay-neuter clinics nationwide. SPCA of Northern Nevada, because we considered that a medical necessity, we kept our spay-neuter program. But we have a very small clinic and we're limited. Still, we're able to do over 3,000 spay-neuter surgeries every year. And that's incredibly important because SPCA of Northern Nevada is the only nonprofit shelter offering community spay neuter mm. and options is an amazing nonprofit veterinary clinic in town that we work very closely with and they have more affordable than a private veterinary mm-hmm. but for us dogs cost a hundred dollars cats cost And we need far more of that. So at a time when the population of our area was exploding in what felt like overnight, access to these programs was greatly diminished. Our appointments, we open them up three-month intervals, and they sell out much faster than Burning Man tickets. People get on 9 a.m. on that particular Thursday when we're opening the next quarter's appointments, and it can be anywhere between five and 20 minutes. They're all taken. That has put us as a country over 3 million spay-neuter surgeries behind where we would have been because of COVID. Mm. That leads to millions and millions of additional unwanted dogs and cats entering our sheltering system nationwide. Our sheltering system is not built to pivot that quickly, and we do not have the resources to absorb that kind of increase in need and in animals. If you look at the philanthropic giving rates that were last published in 2019, it shows the giving rate for the enormous category, animals and the environment, receiving only 3% of philanthropic giving in this country every year. Oh, wow. We know since COVID that that has gone even lower. So think about that for a second. That's everything from pandas to save the whales to dogs and cats to global warming to recycling to mine reclamation. And we get 3% of philanthropic giving. Philanthropic giving has continued to decline in this country at a dramatic rate in the last five years. So that means we're expected to do more at a time when it costs more for the labor and all of our supplies and utilities, and we're receiving less. Mm. And that is a very difficult environment to continue a historically high region-wide save rate. We have been a model for the country for years because Washoe County collectively, that means including our public municipality, has a collective save rate of 94%. 94% of dogs and cats coming into our regional sheltering system have live outcomes. That means they find homes. That's incredible. Yeah. Unfortunately, because of everything that we've talked about so far here today, that is no longer the case and that is declining. And that's why our community is hearing so much about overcapacity. There aren't enough homes. We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough resources. Why all of us are going outside of our approved budgets because we're doing the best we can to save as many animals as we can. And we've had a great success so far this year despite these challenges. Washoe County Regional Animal Services, despite the fact that it's been running at or over capacity for so much of this summer has only had to euthanize two dogs for space. Is that sad? Of course it is. And none of us wake up and do this important work every day because that's what we want the outcome to be. It's impossible to avoid under these circumstances. A big part of why we've been able to keep it to only two is because SVCA of Northern Nevada has increased 
our transports from Washoe County by over 700% this year. Whoa. Yes. That's where the big bags and extra gray hair are coming from. (laughs) In addition to that, historically, 70% of our animals come from rural municipal organizations and foster-based rescues. Mm. They're giant care deserts that SVC of Northern Nevada serves. Oh, okay. So so a lot of your animals that are coming in are not right from Reno. They're from surrounding areas. Because and is it because there's no shelter in let's in Winnemucca or whatever? And so you're the only resource? Is that how that works? Yes, there is a shelter in Winnemucca. Most hmm. of the municipalities do have some sort of sheltering available, at least for dogs. Very few have any catteries, but they don't have the a human adopter population that they need in order to find homes for the amount of mm, dogs that okay. come through them. One of the reasons why our organization was able to pivot and, and serve the rural communities is because in 2016 through 2019, homeless pet populations were at the historically lowest point they had been. And Nevada Humane Society had that right of first refusal and all of that was working well. And so they were handling the Reno populations Mm. that allowed us to pivot our resources to the rules. And we don't just pull their animals. We also offer education and vaccines. And one of these days when we get enough vets and vet staff, we'll be able to do mobile spay neuter clinics and more large vaccine clinics. Mm -hmm. That means to allow increase of 700% from Washoe County so that they don't have to be euthanizing healthier, treatable, and adoptable pets, we've had to reduce what we're doing for our rural communities. So we had to prioritize. If y'all are at capacity, or very close to it, reach out. We'll prioritize you. But if you're not, unfortunately, you have to wait mm. because we are trying to do our best to serve all at-risk pets based on priority. And it creates a lot of difficulty. And because we are in this to save the animals, we've been pushing our team very hard. And that's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. One of the things we talked about before as well, contributing to these populations, is people who are breeding more, like backyard breeder kind of situation. So because there's not the available spay and neuter, and a lot of people were experiencing economic hardship, people turned to, you know, breeding puppies in their backyard and selling them on Craigslist kind of thing. Can you talk about that element of the increasing pet population and the conditions and kind of what that looks like for those animals? It's important to recognize that when people face financial hardships, they do the best they can. I don't want this to come across as judgmental, but educational and explanatory Mm -hmm. instead. We see this backyard breeding or home breeding rates increase when times get tough for people. We really saw it, especially during the Great Recession, which back then classifieds were still primarily on paper. And if you opened your local or regional paper, you would see puppies for sale classifieds Mm -hmm. grow from the usual two to three pages, depending on how large your region is up to six, seven, eight, nine pages because people were breeding their pets to sell them to get money. 
And we saw that same thing start to happen really in 2021 and 2022 and continuing into 2023. Couple that with the reduction in access to affordable spay-neuter that leads to a lot of unwanted pets because there aren't the same safeguards in a qualified adoption program to make sure that those animals are being placed in appropriate environments. Plus there are all the economic reasons we already talked about of why they don't stay in those homes and why ultimately the majority of them find their way into the sheltering system. Additionally, it increases the amount of animals suffering because many of these irresponsible breeders do not follow standards of care for their animals. They don't have the monetary resources to be providing the required vet care. They're often bred and kept outside, so they receive lower levels of socialization, which is critically important, especially for dogs mm-hmm. to be successful home companions and safe home companions. And if they don't find enough buyers, they don't have the resources to keep those pets. And so they get dropped off Mm -hmm. at municipal facilities and other types of shelters. So that definitely adds to the problem. And because 2020 with COVID, there was such this huge overnight demand for companion animals at a time when homeless pet populations were at a historic low, people couldn't find the puppies that they wanted. Mm. They couldn't find the young dogs that they wanted. And so they turned to breeders at greater levels than we'd seen for the prior decade because we'd been really gaining traction in the adoption movement. And so that set us back as well. And most people aren't educated on how to find a reputable breeder. Hmm. There are specific things to look for. There is a place for reputable breeding. I personally would love to not see even reputable breeding until our homeless pet populations are a much lower level and we're not having to euthanize millions of healthy and adoptable pets every year again. Mm-hmm. But That's a dream, and I can hold that to myself. But there is a massive difference between a reputable breeder and an irreputable backyard or home breeder. Mm -hmm. And we have a blog post on spcanevada.org under our pet resources tab that will walk you through what to look for with a reputable breeder. One of the conversations that comes up pretty regularly, and I know this is very far away from us, but it's all of a sudden a very hot topic in England and London. They're talking about banning the the bully breeds, and it's like a really big deal over there right now. But I've heard that on and off over the years here of breed bans and what dogs are safer than others. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with different breeds of dogs, uh, these breed bans? whether some dogs are more dangerous than others and why. Can you just talk a little bit about breed differences in dogs and your experience in that? We love to educate people. And by we, I mean the entire sheltering movement, but 
particularly well-educated progressive shelters and organizations love to educate people that animals are individuals. Breed gives us limited insight to behavior. I say limited because just like the debate in humans of is it nature versus nurture, it's never one or the other, it's a combination. Mm. But it is not definitive. So breed can give us insight to common characteristics of that breed. But at the end of the day, we have to look at that animal as an individual. So if we get an animal in and we're told by the relinquishing owner half border collie, half cattle dog, those breed types can give us insight to energy level, drive level, intelligence level, but we are still going to behavior assess that animal because even with those two breed types, those are working dogs, those are dogs historically bred for unending energy levels, (laughs) drive, and intelligence. Mm -hmm. So coupled together, you would think that would lead to a very high energy, very intelligent dog that will create mischief unless it is occupied and in a healthy, enriched way. Right. But not always. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen that breed type come in and it's lazier than an overweight Labrador by a fire. That's what I mean by the limited information we can glean from stereotypical breed-based behaviors. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's important. Working dogs, okay. When we behavior assess and that dog has a difficult time keeping all four of its paws on the ground, plus its age is eight months old, plus it's been living in a small apartment without daily walks, that helps us understand why it's behaving the way that it is. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to better care for that animal, get its needs met while with us, plus match it with a more appropriate family. But it does not govern behavior. So when we talk about breed discrimination, we talk about what you refer to, which are the bully breeds. That's primarily pit bull type dogs, Staffordshire Terriers, American Bullies, Bulldogs, Rottweilers, Doberman Pinschers, German Shepherds. Right now, it's primarily pit bull type dogs and the big headed, what we call the blocky headed whatevers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because you can also determine very little based on appearance. That's a small percentage of the DNA. So even veterinary and sheltering professionals can look at a dog and say, clearly that's a border collie pit mix. And it can be, you know, 98% lab Mm. with some cocker spaniel in it. But it really puts a prejudiced view in the minds of humans when it comes to these animals. And so municipalities worldwide sometimes do ban specific breeds from living within their city limits couple of examples are those of our London pit bull terriers and similar breed types are not allowed to live in London. Same thing in various towns and cities throughout Canada. I always think of Nelson because I love Nelson and I almost always have pit mix as my own personal pets and they're not allowed to even be walked on a leash through those municipalities. They can't live there. Hmm. 
all that does is lead to higher kill rates of healthy, adoptable animals. If you look at the data over the last 10 to 15 years, aggression, offensive aggression exhibited in certain circumstances by golden retrievers has substantially increased, resulting from poor breeding practices. You ask any practicing veterinarian, anyone on their staff, they see it every day, plus there's data to back it up. But nobody's willing to ban a golden retriever based on what it looks like. Mm. So what these breed discrimination tactics are trying to do is create safer neighborhoods and safer environments. We all get that. I'm on the same page as I talked about earlier. The importance of doing behavioral humane euthanasias when it's not safe to place those animals into communities. Mm -hmm. But this is an example of where the method does not have a direct connection to solving the problem. We're seeing this so much in homeowners associations Mm -hmm. as well, which would be a fascinating topic for you in another podcast is to look at when we talk about the violation of constitutional rights in our country, I truly believe, as do many others much smarter than me, that the largest impact to our constitutional rights right now are homeowners associations and CCNRs. Hmm. But why it matters in our region is because every new development approved has a homeowners association and based on CCRs, which can really run the gamut because it's whatever that particular development lawyer has copied and pasted from an already existing community. There's very little thought and consideration. And I know because I used to be one of those lawyers. Mm. (laughs) And many of those include breed discrimination bans when what they're trying to do is protect a community. So have language around dangerous dogs. We have enforceable dangerous dog ordinances already in Washoe County Mm -hmm. with an entire process and hearing with subject matter experts. For you to tell me that my 12-year-old Doberman, who has always had a sweet disposition, is not allowed in my neighborhood based on what it looks like, is going to lead to that animal's unnecessary death. Mm. Whereas an actual dangerous cocker spaniel, mix of any type, golden retriever, even golden doodles, yes, they too can exhibit offensive aggression, making them unsafe, regardless of their alleged breeding that earned them a $3,000 price tag. Mm. We have to be looking at each animal as an individual. In Nevada, because we've had this access to affordable pet-friendly housing issue, I started talking to a lot of landlords, individual landlords, larger corporate landlords, the huge private equity firms that own so much of surplus housing now won't return my phone calls, so I can't say that I've spoken directly (laughs) to them. But HSUS... Humane Society of the United States also was having conversations and collecting national data that echoed what I was finding on our regional basis. Lots of landlords were telling me, I'd love to not have breed bans, 
but our property insurance company won't cover us if I allow pit bulls, Rottweilers, Dobermans, whatever the the evil dog of the moment is, Mm -hmm. because it changes over time. And so we had collaborative efforts here in the state of Nevada, and during our last legislative session, we got a law passed that prohibits property insurance companies from breed discrimination in homeowner policies in the state of Nevada. Huh. Amazing. Yeah. Now ask me how big of an impact that made. Uh, How big of an impact did that make? Are the landlords changing their behaviors? Tragically, no. Hmm. So often things that are told to us aren't the truth because nobody wants to be the bad guy. There's a lot of myths around pet owners renting properties. And so we are working on an educational initiative to bust those myths and talk about the benefits of renting to pet owning families. The longevity you get from the tenants, Mm -hmm. trying to educate landlords. If you're concerned about property damage, you can apply an additional pet deposit. We believe it violates our state constitution to require additional pet rent, especially looking at the insane rental rates as they are Mm -hmm. right now. So I don't support that as a reason. But because the dog is large or a particular breed type, there is absolutely no credible data linking that to higher rates of property damage. Little dogs versus a big mastiff, that mastiff has less energy, most likely, again, every animal is mm-hmm. an individual. So why are you doing a weight limit? Why are you presuming that that mastiff is going to cause more property damage than that chihuahua or that, that shih tzu or that mix? A lot of it is education and getting people to realize they are tearing families apart and animals are dying unnecessarily. We fight breed discrimination in the U.S. really hard using actual data. And we've been very successful at that in the last 10 years. But homeowners associations are an entirely different ballgame. Mm-hmm. And that leads to more pets being turned into shelters of specific breed types, which leads to increased rates of unnecessary deaths of those animals. And it tears families apart. I wish every landlord that this impacts could come to my facility and spend a day watching loving families sobbing, trying to console each other and their children because the rental they can afford is in a housing development that doesn't allow a pit-type dog. And they don't even know if their dog has pit in them. But a neighbor filed a complaint that they're blocky-headed whatever, which could as easily be a lab and boxer as it could be anything that has Staffordshire or American Pit Bull Terrier in it. And they are sobbing. And this sweet, loving dog doesn't understand why its family is walking out of that building while my staff is trying to lure them with hot dogs, whipped cream, anything to get them to stop watching, stop Mm. pulling on that leash and stop whining for the family they've had for six years and then has to go spend its first night, which is always the worst, in a kennel 
not eating, not drinking, whining, waiting for its loving family to come back. And now our team has to care for that animal, try to help it stay healthy and happy so that we can find another loving family for it. Mm. That is one of the biggest reasons we have such high turnover in this industry. Please help us keep families together. If you're worried about dangerous dogs, then have language about dangerous dogs. Support Washoe County Code Amendment so that we can better enforce the whole dangerous dog process. Don't ban dogs based on their appearance. Mm -hmm. Because I've owned three pit mixes in my life, including the two I currently have. I meet them every single day. Is every single one of them perfect? No. Do we sometimes have to humanely euthanize a pit type dog for inappropriate to severe offensive aggression? Yes. But we have to do the same for every other breed type and breed mix. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you my two dogs are the best dogs I've ever had. And they are amazing. And they lick the faces of babies and kids on a daily basis. Tell me more about your dogs. Uh, Like in talking to people who are pet people, animal people, you're talking about everyone else's dogs and policies and systems, but you're also a pet owner and you love your pets. So tell me a little bit about your dogs. I have a very robust family currently. (laughs) (laughs) I have three cats and two dogs, and they are the loves of my life. In addition to my son, of course, love him. And he loves all of our pets. All of them are SBCA alumni at this point. Gracie is my oldest, and she was what we call in the industry a failed foster, which is a term that has some negative and yet playful connotations. She was born down at the Washoe County facility. Her mom was picked up as a stray, Mm -hmm. and my son and I took them home to foster them. We try to avoid moms giving birth in shelter, cats and dogs, because it's a higher stress environment. Their cortisol levels rise. That passes through the placenta to the developing babies, and it can cause behavioral problems Hmm. and development problems. But sometimes it's unavoidable. So we fostered them. It was a litter of six. One especially grabbed our hearts. And at the time, we had our Coda dog, who was a Catahoula lab pit mix, who was 14. So it was time for us to start thinking about bringing in a younger pet. Mm -hmm. And then came Butters, who was a cat. And he's amazing. And he came to us because he was a hospice. When we have an animal who is not suffering but is dying, we try to get them out of our facility into a specialized foster home which we call a hospice foster or a phospice. (laughs) (laughs) Butters was in full-blown kidney failure. My team had stabilized him over the prior week, but he did not have a good prognosis. It was a Friday afternoon. I did not want him to pass away overnight by himself in our clinic, so I brought him home. My son was also sick. And over the next 10 hours, as I placed Butters on the bed, he slowly and occasionally army crawled until he was draped over my son. And they slept like that for 10 hours. And the next morning they woke up. 
And my son was feeling better. And he spent the whole next day reading to Butters in bed. And the day after that, Butters started drinking a little bit of water on his own. And he started licking a little bit of food off my finger alone. Butters was my first cat. He's an incredible, awesome cat. And as my first cat, he just made my life. And now I will always have cats as well. And then Ash, I adopted because Gracie fell in love with her. (laughs) (laughs) And Ash is, and I know their breed types because I genetically tested them. Everyone thinks Gracie is a silver lab, which is the breeding of a genetic mutation, which is a bad thing. And it's not what she is. Mm -hmm. Very few people think she's a pit bull at first because she's so fluffy. You don't see it right away. And she works as a breed type ambassador every single day, changing people's minds on what they think they know about mm. pit bulls. Ash is an American bully, pit, Australian shepherd border collie mix. So she, if you had given me those breed types on a piece of paper, I would have said 100% pass. Mm. No thanks. That dog's going to need a lot of work. It's going to need a job. Needs to get into agility. Needs too many walks and runs than what I have the time to give it because I work too much. (laughs) And yet she's super mellow, very loving. And she and Gracie play so well together and they love each other intensely. And she's an absolute Velcro dog and super kind and sweet. Amazing. Um, And then I have two other kittens. Two other kittens, sorry. Which Butters will never forgive me for. What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about uh, the work that you do or what the SBCA does or anything that we that we didn't cover? I want them to know and understand one of the biggest points of pride our community should have in this organization is that we put pets first and we pivot to the best of our ability to provide our communities, animals and people with the resources and the services they need the most at that point. Because we are here for our community. We wake up every day so eager to serve our pets and people. And while they may not always have the experience they expect, we strive daily to provide the very best experience that we possibly can. And our work is very difficult. And our industry is very under-resourced. So yes, sometimes we're short-staffed. Yes, sometimes we can't return voicemails that day or even the next day. But that doesn't make us bad people. And it doesn't mean we're not doing the very best following high standards of care for the animals it means we're overwhelmed and we need their support. Mm -hmm. So please be kind, not just to my team, to everyone in veterinary medicine, which has one of the highest turnover rates of any industry. And veterinarians now hold the top spot for the most suicides of any profession. That was historically held by dentists, Mm -hmm. which I know because I come from a dental family. And now it's veterinarians. And there's a massive shortage of over 20,000 in order to serve the amount of pets we have in this country. Be kind to your vets. Be Mm -hmm. kind to their support staff. Licensed veterinary technicians are incredibly hard to come by. And we need them to do all of this important work. Mm -hmm. 
Be kind to each other. Be kind to your pets. Be kind to all the rest of us. We are here to serve you. And be open to learning new things about pets you've had and known your whole lives. Because science is constantly growing and evolving. And what we know about animal behavior now, we didn't know five years ago. And we certainly didn't know 30 and 40 years ago when we were all taught to roll up a newspaper and dominate our dogs and swat them. That is not how their behavior works. It's not how they respond. Our website has so many resources from affordable programs to behavior help. We have a help desk that anyone from the community can call, not just our alumni adopters. Call us. We want to help you keep your pets in your loving home. We want to help provide you both with what you need to thrive and live healthy, loving lives. Our adoption center is located at 4950 Spectrum Boulevard. Take the Dandini exit off of North 395. The same exit accesses TMCC and Desert Research Institute. You can find us online. Again, that's the quickest way to start the process to become a volunteer. It's the quickest way to donate. It's the quickest way to learn more about our team, our volunteer board of directors, our programs, and our current and upcoming fundraising campaigns, as well as lots of informational resources and cute photos. And of course, all of our current adoptable animals. But remember, we have new pets up for adoption every single day because we're intaking animals every single day. We are desperate for increased donations this year. We're entering the most important fundraising quarter for all nonprofits, the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. We are no different. But because we have dramatically increased our intakes the way that we have, as well as increased expenses like everyone else is facing, we need your donations to keep doing this important work. We have to, over the next couple of weeks, start to reduce our capacity because it's not sustainable. Mm. And we have to prioritize the care of our animals and the care of our people. So please help us afford the wages it takes to get people to help us, the money it costs for the medical and daily care for these pets. Volunteers we desperately need. We get part of our funding from our thrift store that we run. Mm -hmm. It's Reno's only thrift store where the proceeds go to helping homeless pets. All proceeds go directly into our adoption center and programs. So that is located at 75 East Moana Lane. That's the intersection of Moana and Virginia. We just revamped the floor, giving people more of what they want, which is lots more clothing, lots of treasures to find. Mm -hmm incredible price breaks you will find up to 75 percent off every single day so please check us out there support us that way and shop there and we have various adoption events coming up in october so keep your eyes open for promotions and events and adopt don't buy pets excellent well Jill, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling me all this stuff about pets. I have really enjoyed having pets of my own. I love my friends who have pets. I wish that I could have a pet in my apartment, but cannot. 
So I appreciate the conversation about landlords and about creating spaces for these pets too, because I do think that sounds like an important part of the equation. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show. And hopefully by listening to this, we get some more pets into good homes. I adore your podcast. You do a fantastic job. And I am so grateful for the opportunity to speak with you and our community as well. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to my guest, Jill Vakina Dobbs from the SPCA of Northern Nevada. Really great to learn about what is going on in the pet community. Spay and neuter your pets, adopt a pet, get a pet. Pets are awesome. You should go get one. Go adopt one. You should do that now. Again, if you have suggestions for future episodes or guests, shoot me an email, Connor, C-O-N-O-R at renoites.com. And be sure that you're following me on Instagram. That's at renoites on Instagram. It is the main social media that I use. I'm also on Facebook, but Instagram is the best way to get a hold of me. You can shoot me a message on there and share posts. Tell people about the show. Word of mouth is everything, as I always say. So help me let people know that this show exists. There's still tens of thousands of daily podcast listeners who haven't found Renoites yet. You can help change that. So spread the word, share posts on social media. I really appreciate all of your support. As promised, here's a little sneak peek of the bonus content. You can hear this entire segment, even without signing up for Patreon, just by visiting patreon.com slash Renoites. I know that there was a recent lawsuit or an issue with an uh, iron facility that's supposed to go in next to the SPCA. Can you just give me a little bit of an overview of that for folks who haven't been following that news? The parcel of land that's right next to us was purchased by Reno Ironworks about two years ago now. And they filed an application with the city of Reno to build a metal fabrication plant on it. The facility is over 40,000 square feet and includes a whole additional pad for future development, which was not defined whatsoever. And SBCA of Northern Nevada, despite the fact that we are the adjacent landowner, was not notified of this project. Hmm. We did not receive the required mailed notice. The physical notice that they put was on the edge of our bordering property, which if you look up the street north to where Reno Ironworks bought the land, you can't see it because the street curves. We discourage volunteers and staff from walking dogs up that way because it's towards the emergency center and it's not the safest environment. And, And so we don't often walk that path and you couldn't see the sign and nobody called us which you think would be a no-brainer given Mm -hmm. that we're an indoor outdoor facility rehabilitating and housing vulnerable pet populations and we all know pets are far more susceptible to things like noise vibration dust disturbances I only found out about it a couple of hours before the planning commission meeting because I had a volunteer or a staff member actually decide to walk up the hill for additional leg exercise that day. And we have objected to this project for the obvious nuisance reasons and negative impacts it will have on our animals as well as our general operations the entire time. We appeal the planning commission approved. That was just a preview of a little bit of bonus content with Jill available on our Patreon. One of the ways that this show exists is through support from listeners just like you. Patreon allows you to donate on a monthly basis as little as $3 a month. 
You can learn more at patreon.com slash renoids and listen to the rest of Jill's answer to that question. You don't have to be a member on my Patreon to listen to that. Just visit renoites.com slash Patreon. You can listen to the rest of that segment and learn a little bit more about how you can support the show. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week.